Today's guest will be Trevor Treglia, an American composer and synthesist whose work concerns text, microtonality and alternative notation. Treglia resides in Los Angeles, California and studies composition and experimental sound practices at California Institute of the Arts. He has produced several albums for the Form Forum label and most recently untitled, an album of long-form electronic compositions. Trevor has made several radio appearances on DubLab and 10.AS and hosts a monthly radio show No Escape Except Peace on Internet Public Radio and Venino Radio. My name is Giovanni Grandi and this is Let's Talk Music with Hello, Trevor. Thanks for being with us. Hey, great to be here. I was uh, curious to talk about your album, but first uh, I'd like to hear more about uh, your musical journey and your uh, your experience as a musician that led you where you are right now. Great. Where do I start? Um, I think I my first musical experiences was like playing... Um, a little bit of violin and a little bit of cello in the um, like in elementary school ensemble, and I quickly dropped that. Um, and then I kind of really fell in love with music, being active in the Los Angeles and Orange County punk scene. So that was like a huge revelation to me, mm. for me going to shows like, and then finding and like falling in love with like the LA noise scene was just kind of my pathway into the kind of stuff that I'm doing now. So I found that and it's, I feel like it's, it's interesting. I tell people that I have like kind of a little bit of a reverse experience. A lot of my like friends and colleagues, they, uh, they start in like this more classical field or jazz field. And then they get progressively, stranger and stranger i feel like i started pretty strange and then have Mm -hmm. been been more interested in kind of more tonal music and then um kind of have this reverse thing um but then through like through you know being interested in like punk music and noise music i got more interested in things like techno electronic music and then that kind of led me to um kind of being interested in a lot of the early electronic music, like uh, Elian Radig and um, you know, like that, that are just incredible and serve as like this huge inspiration. Also, like on the other end of the spectrum, Harry Parge is like kind of mm-hmm. revolutionary. I could go on forever with a list of names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, when did you find that the synthesizer word was the the instrument you needed, and then the modular synthesizer also? Modular synthesizer. Well, my first synthesizer was. I mean, I had little oscillators, and I, it's it's funny because I I found myself doing um, finding myself do that do this process now of just having an oscillator and a filter and just using the the oscillator to just controlling it pitch on the knob and then opening the filter mm-hmm. let some sound in uh, and then just closing it okay and that like that was my original experience with um and it's so simple and just recently i found that that technique of just manually controlling both of those two parameters of pitch and then of opening and closing a filter is like 
And then going into like a DAW and layering that, that's like, I think an amazing technique. And I'm, I'm really, really fond of that now. And I found myself sort of returning to that. But my first synthesizer was a Korg MS-20 Mini, um, my first mm-hmm. little modular. Um, and that, I learned, it just kind of taught me everything. Uh, and I just fell yeah. in love with that. I can imagine. Because of th- th- that interface has also, I think, it, I think it was originally also designed for educational purposes. Oh, really? Right. So, I think so, because they, they had a school with, with the MS-20 back in the, in the 70s. I think they had a school in, in Japan, or several schools, actually, where you could learn synthesizer like, hands-on. I think there is a video by uh, Alex Ball showcasing the, the teacher's MS-20, which ha- was like blackboard big and so with those huge knobs but inside there was just uh, an MS-20 that was like very and yeah so I'm not surprised that uh, such an instrument was your uh, your main uh, um, gateway into synthesizers I wish I still had one but uh, they're uh, you know that's an amazing just an amazing instrument and there's very like so affordable too nowadays like I, I feel compared to other synthesizers I'm like it gives you everything in just one little. Uh, what about your mm, musical influences that mm, led you uh, where you are and then carried on your There's like such a wide array of, of musical influences that it's. It's hard to just pick one, but like I always deal with it in in weeks. Like every week, it's a it's, it's okay. <laughs> I, I focus on and um, like right now I mentioned earlier, but uh, like Elian Radig has been like somebody that's been really a, a beacon of inspiration for me. Um, mainly, just her. You know, it's it's incredibly slow music, a lot of it, but it's it's mm-hmm. has this beautiful form of that's just quite inspiring and incredible, and it just blows it blows my mind. And it's just her. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm talking mainly about her um, electronic compositions on her ARP twenty five hundred. Oh yeah. And then also another revelation that I've had re- recently is because I've been fortunate to um, be working on the um, the Surge synthesizer at CalArts, um, and mm-hmm. they the and it's my first time using that uh, kind of high voltage uh, banana jack, and ever since just working with that, I was like, oh, I mean, I know it's not the same, but um, having mult cables is also just a, a revelation mm. for me <laughs> like i can yeah i can just take one thing like when you plug something in uh the the output doesn't go away <laughs> it stays yeah and you can it's like uh was a revelation so combining those two things of you know just having mm things mapped to one slider in different ways. It's just been like, uh, truly, I've 
of revelation, you know. Um. Yeah, because it might also affect the way you think about patching because you you don't have to, it's more uh, in the moment, it's, it feels like, because you, you don't have to foresee where you will use that cable, where you will use that output. I mean, I'm not surprised that those synthesizers were mostly used for improvised music because you, you, you have plenty of options always available. I mean, having the output always there no matter how many cables you pass into that i mean it's yeah it's totally changed my um and it's been a recent i was like okay i gotta get these i gotta do these and they're um and yeah it's just been it's incredible that the idea that no output ever goes away it feels like my synthesizer has been multiplied by mm. you know <laughs> just continuing yeah. multiplying them changed the way that I've thought about things. So those two things have, is, have changed the way that I've been thinking about patching on the modular fundamentally. And, uh, you know, mm. through that, I feel like I, I am thinking a lot about uh, Radik in the way that, you know, and it's funny because I, she doesn't, she's still with us, but I, I has, um, I haven't seen her patch on her synthesizer, so I'm almost just imagining how she would do it. <laughs> yeah, because it was such a such a unique way of uh, of patching that it's almost quite hard to um, break down into pieces that can be learned and thought and passed on to other generations. So um, it was like a very almost uh, um, tailored to 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 herself. It was such a way of uh, playing rather than composing, which makes it m way more personal than other musicians, I think. Definitely. I, I think she, like, I saw one video of her, like, she, she definitely had a plan for every composition. Like, she, she knew where she was going, and, and there's, like, this great video of her on, I, I think I just saw it on YouTube, where she, you sort of see her, and she talks a little bit about how if, she messes up she has to start the, the tape over because it's just her and yeah i saw that yeah i saw that that is so interesting I, that's where I she mean, had to start I, all I over again about, like re, um something that uh morton feldman did uh is apparently like john cage would go over to his his apartment and uh morton would just be uh on the sheet music paper just like filling in the staves and then with no music, just like just drawing lines, basically, and then he'd mm -hmm. <laughs> put the double bar line. I'd be like, "Oh, this is it," and then he'd fill it with music. Like he'd take, he'd understand how long something would be, and then he'd fill mm -hmm. it with music later. Which I think is it's like you almost you create the vessel, okay, in which um, you just fill, which is so strange. I think for me because. Yeah, I can go on a long time, like a really long time. I can, especially with this, uh, you know, uh, things like generative patching, where it's interesting. All mm. it just stays, at least to my ears, it stays interesting, and you could go for hours. And I, <laughs> you almost have to build this this form before. Uh, I I think that's a great way to like look at it. It's like oh. I, you know, this piece will be seven minutes <laughs> or this mm. piece will be 30 minutes yeah. yeah, and then stop. But we're um, maybe a little unlucky to have uh, this endless 
uh, no limitations, you know. You can keep recording in for as long as you want. I think that uh, both approaches can uh, can can work. I mean, uh, the I I I admire uh, Radig's uh, approach uh, because she treats the synthesizer as a like as, as a real instrument, and the tape is just uh, a way to store the the music. But the music has been made before reaching the tape. But at the same time. At the same time, I also admire those uh, composers who just uh, use the synthesizer to create sounds, and then uh, uh, they start composing with the, the, the tape. So I think that both both can can work. I, mean, I was more towards uh, Radig's uh, uh, vision earlier, but as I am uh, now, I've been listening a lot to the uh, Forbidden Planet soundtrack, for example. But also, I heard the Sound on Sound podcast on the Delia Derbyshire Archive, uh, where they basically say that the um, EMS, the VCS3, uh, the first model originally didn't have any controller because it was used to, uh, Tristram Carey, I think, wanted it to just create sounds and record the sounds on tape. And then from the tape onwards, it began like the actual uh, composition. No, that's so, um, I think about that a lot too, because they're definitely different, very different paradigms of the way that we can approach synthesis is because there is this, mm. and I, I, don't, I don't know if, I think I do a little bit of, of both. Um, yeah. Where, where it's, you know, it's, there's something that I do like about thinking about things before, you know, I always think about, um, sort of trying to do as much as I can before I hit the mixer. Mm. There's so many sound design possibilities that you can do before you hit the mixer, before you add effects. Um, and there's so much that you can do to shape your sound. And then when you hit the mixer, like I feel like there's this end point where it's like the sound is it's going out into the, into the world. Mm. Um, and considering things happening on... I try to consider things happening on all these different levels of of a composition where it's mm. like there's things that are happening immediately and then there's things happening on like a uh like mezzo middle like uh pace and then the things that are happening on like the more glacial large structural uh pace mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, it's 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 funny cuz I find when I am working on these instruments, it's always nice to have this form that's maybe created already. Um, like something like, I, I think we talked about with this, this patch, this drone, that is like, a, <clears throat> I, I love a drone where, where you can sort of, it, it does, really create this this durational thing that is um, in this form in which you can fill with more music or reduce, mm -hmm. or reduce. It, it, it kind of does that job 
but dealing with things on, I find that if I am just creating sounds and then organizing them, I tend to get a little lost myself. Yeah. Where do these sounds put together and where do these sounds, um, yeah. But if I have something that's like happening on this large, long time scale, I find that I have, you know, and that drum can go away or something, but I, I feel like it, it, it's the most comfortable that I am in composing. Um, Cause I have this thing that grounds, grounds me. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that. I think you can go either way, you know, and I think it's also good to be really uncomfortable. You know, a lot of the things mm. that I feel like I've been working on now are making me, <laughs> make me uncomfortable. But yeah, I see that because uh, having, you know, as soon as you start working and arranging your sound, like in a sort of post-production kind of way, let it be in a DAW or whatever other device you're using. I mean, you, you will have endless possibilities and um, I tend to be a bit frightened by so many possibilities and tend to get lost, as you said. Because while if you, if you are making your music live and just recording it, you tend to play safer and you tend to know your limitations and what to do and what not to do. Uh, it feels like a more uh, confined uh, um, horizon. To speak. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that that's the thing is like as uh, composers, musicians we like have to bring these it's it's it feels like an impossible task because you have you're right these endless possibilities mm. and then you you right. have to bring them into one composition especially with the synthesizer where there's things can happen on every you know, I'm really inspired by and we were talking about earlier a little bit it's just not knowing trying to find documentation of what people like Radig did in the past, mm. like how did, how did she do it? Um, mm. And I was just thinking that I'm so happy and excited about the, uh, the Alan Strange uh, reissue. Oh yeah. Cause now we know, uh, we know how they, they did it. <laughs> the, at least mm. people, you know, him and then kind of his contemporaries, like we can see like, Oh, this is how they were approaching this instrument then which i think is very helpful and the thing that i'm so inspired by is like i think it's just like the first chapter the first thing is like talking about how as opposed to more um traditional instruments things like timbre um the volume of the sound and uh pitch are all tied together but in our synthesizers they're all separate yeah that's the the that that is like strangest uh, parametric thinking uh, kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's um, that's also a, feels like a revelation. I mean, it's it's something mm. that I think that a lot of us electronic uh, composers and musicians know instinctively, but really having it be there in plain English, like this is uh, you know all of these things are separate, and you get to decide these connections is truly like kind of an amazing way to approach working with mm. instruments which i think it was uh, uh both uh, uh harder and easier to approach the synthesizer back then because uh you it was um, you didn't have 
uh, a lot of documentation and there was no history in terms of uh, uh, practices and uh, things to do and not to do. But at the same time, you have uh, you, you got rid very early of the association between note and sound and the fact that when you play a regular instrument the act of playing and the note are more or less the same thing and you squeeze everything together into them these um, musical uh, particles but with the synthesizer you can break the atom into smaller particles and uh, for for me and I think for everyone who starts playing with a, another kind of synthesizer, like a keyboard one, uh, you still have to um, go back a bit and uh, and unlearn some something when if you when you approach an instrument like the modular synthesizer, where nothing is um, is obvious, as you said. And I, I like also just the idea of that with the modular synthesizer and compared to something like a, a keyboard synthesizers, like, yeah, as if uh, the fact that you actually have to plug it in is, uh, you know, there's this act of um, uh, defining the instrument that has to happen, which that's what mm -hmm. David Rosenboom and then now uh, Todd Barton, they talk about um, how instead of calling things a patch, they, they're now using the term, or, and then I think Strange does it too, where they, they, they refer to patches, what we call patches as instrument definitions. But I think it's a, an int something interesting to uh, think about because we're really defining, we're, 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 we're defining an instrument, we're building an instrument every time that we yeah. unplug our synthesizers and then plug them back in. We're, how do we want it to be? You know, how do we want it to mm. sound? Which I think that, yeah, it's a bit of a um, something that we might have lost along the way uh, with the increase of uh, um, modules and decrease of modular synth popularity. And uh, we tend to think mostly about modules um, in, rather than functions. Uh, because uh, you, you, when reading uh, older manuals, mm, first there is the function and then they name the module, but just if needed. Uh, but otherwise you need an LFO and then you focus on the LFO. But if it comes from a, a feedback filter at 10 hertz or an oscillator or a looping envelope, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And I think something, there's something kind of unfortunate there where, because to me, you know, it might, it feels a little controversial, <laughs> maybe a little provocative, mm. but, you know, there, there are all these filters and all these different ones. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like, to me, you know, the different types of filters sound the same, but something like with uh, with Kunza is like it's it's a flexible filter. It's and that I li I like that. I like that about it, where it, it can be. It's mainly focused on that it is a filter. It's a it's function rather than it having a particular sound. That's what, at least that's my interpretation of of it is. It's not really focused on um, 
because with like things like the distortion path on the filter, I don't know what you what you call it, but um, the character knob it can yeah. turn from a you know clean uh, filter mm. like as clean as it can get, and then it can turn into like a wild distorted thing, and I think that that's really elegant um, as opposed to having one filter be your your nasty distorted filter and then you have one clean filter it's like oh it's just a function you know mm. yeah we can just use these functions to create our <laughs> instrument definitions our patches um so but since uh, uh you have uh, recently mentioned the instrument definition uh, i think that we can uh, uh, listen to your patch now and uh, your patch breakdown or rather your uh, instrument definition Great, let's do it. I find drones as a great starting point for my compositional process, as they serve as a canvas in which I can start to write melodies, build textures, or improvise over. For this patch, I am using both of Brenzo's oscillators, which are sequenced and controlled by Usta, Felistri, and Sapel. Recently, I've become more and more interested in exploring microtonal just intonation in my music. Usta offers many different EDOs, scales, and allows you the ability to write your own temperaments. But these days, I've been exploring using Usta's raw voltages instead of the quantized pitch voltages, as raw voltages allow me the ability to play just intervals with greater accuracy than most equal divisions of the octave. This style of sequencing is more reminiscent of old school style sequencers like the Surge TKB touched activated keyboard sequencer, which offers no quantized outputs. I've become more and more fond of this kind of sequencing because it really makes me use my ears. For this drone, I tried to select pitches that had some harmonic relationship to my drone pitch of A. Instead of approaching this as a linear sequence, I decided I wanted a degree of randomness when it comes to which two pitches were played simultaneously. For this, I used Sapel's sample and hold voltages and patched them into Usta in order to modulate the stage shift parameter for the two voices. I also wanted a degree of randomness when it comes to which register each pitch is played in. For this, I combined the outgoing sequence from Usta with the N plus one quantized random voltages using my 333. Sapel's N plus one output is a stepped random voltage quantized to volts. This will make the pitch jump registers at random. I'm using Felistri in LFO mode to tr send trigger advanced signals to Usta and Sapel. Sapel's sample and hold circuit is changing the rate of the two envelopes, which gives this patch its organic and unpredictable form. I'm using these same LFOs to open and close Kunsa's filters in low-pass gate mode and using Sapel's smooth random voltages to move the voices throughout the stereo field. After developing a drone like this one, my instinct is to record it into Ableton, listen to what I've recorded, and see what's there. Afterwards, I might add a few more voices or work on a transition to another section of the piece.
probably the most uh, uh, striking feature of uh, your um, instrument uh, is that you uh, use the raw voltages, uh, like a sequence uh, based on raw voltages, which, uh, I mean, now that we talked this much about uh, synthesizer back in, like the early days of synthesizer, is no surprising, but uh, yeah, how did you come up with that? Yeah, I, th I think I mentioned in, in the patch that I've been just w working with the uh, the surge recently and and just seeing how they sort of do it just, you know there there aren't these quantized uh, and I was like how do I you know and I love like my um, I don't know it's been a long time but when I had my Korg uh, MS20 um, I had the little C mm -hmm. here, the SQ1 which is amazing uh, that's also an amazing uh, little device. Um, and I don't think that that had quantized voltages either. And there's something about it, um, about, you know, I don't have perfect pitch. I, you know, uh, have, I guess, mm -hmm. rel relative, <laughs> but, um, having to really use your ears. Yeah. You mentioned that in the past that it really forces you to use your ears. And then be like, Oh, does this sound good? You know, does this sound interesting and then also i've been really as i um yeah I, it's still very new to me and i don't feel um you know there's it's such a vast world but the world of microtonality and just intonation is just such i mean that stuff has been blowing my mind and i find that with um, just for me trying to, you know, just falling in love with these just intervals, it's hard, to rep it's hard to replicate that with, um, at least for me, I'm like, well, I want to go for these just intervals instead of doing equal divisions of the octave, which I, I like equal divisions mm. of the octave. And I'm in no means, a, you know, I still write some music in 12 tone equal temperament for sure. Mm. But, um, you know, if I want to compose a piece using these just intervals, like I want them to be just rather than uh, having it be still an approximation. Um, so yeah. I've been experimenting, really just experimenting with uh, using these raw voltages to approximate these. I mean, you can never really get fully get there, um, but approximate these just intervals and getting things like my uh, harmonic seventh uh which is somebody told me that it's like cheap wine, <laughs> but I love that sound. <laughs> I love cheap wine too. <laughs> it's like the, the, the barbershop dominant seventh. Is that what they called also, which is like the perfect dominant? It, no, it's, it's like the, um, well, I actually don't know. Cause I don't know that much about the barbershop dominant seventh, but it's, uh, okay. but maybe, maybe, um, but the, it's, I know that it's, using the interval from the seventh, uh, the seventh partial, the, um, ah, okay. I see the seventh overtone, which is like the perfect, uh, dominant seven. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's such a strange yeah. sound. I mean, when I first heard that sound, it was, um, in Lamont Young's well-tuned piano. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I've, lived with that piece for a while now and it's kind of 
has come back to me recently with the the work that I've been doing now, which like my um my big project that I've been working on in, for the past couple of months is working with the uh, Yamaha uh, Disclavier. The it's like a mm-hmm. yeah MIDI player piano. It just yeah, but it, it it it's like the player for an acoustic piano, right? Yeah, for an acoustic piano. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I think, I think that a friend of mine had one. had one. They're really weird. Um, and I I've heard, of course, like uh, I know that Aphex Flynn, his um, all of his piano, maybe not all, but his some of his more famous piano pieces are all using that Yamaha um, Disclavier. It's such a strange instrument. It's like in between a piano and a synthesizer because you know we only have uh you know a certain amount of fingers <laughs> and yeah uh how is that uh how do you call in english that the the, the, the like, i think it was the piano roll i mean those like the the, the 1800 yeah like player piano Ah, yeah, the player piano, because I was thinking about Conlon Nancaro. Yeah, no, definitely. And he's thinking about him too, and, and, uh, and Tenny, because uh, they, they both wrote, I mean, I think that uh, Tenny wrote music for, for uh, Nancaro. And that, that music, mm. it's, it's so, I mean, and I've been thinking about, yeah, it's, it's uh, Jim Tenny's spectral canon for Colin Nancaro, which I have to deal with that piece because I'm tuning, I retuned the piano to just mm-hmm. So I'm like, and in that piece, um, the player piano is like, it's retuned to, I think the harmonics series. And it's a really weird piece. And the Nancaro stuff is very strange. <laughs> strange. Um, really weird uh <laughs> so <laughs> but then again sorry you are talking about your uh your most recent work on the uh this but i've been here. just been experimenting with and 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 me writing music for is this this just intonated player or uh yeah i guess player piano disclavier and it's it's strange i mean i think i definitely because it is an acoustic instrument but it is controlled mm. by um like MIDI software. And I think mm-hmm. I, I still approach it with this kind of parametric thinking, mm. you know, cause in some ways you can really control, you can fine tune like the, the velocity of the keys and things like that. Mm-hmm. In a way that you can't, you can, if you're, list or just an amazing pianist like where you can fine-tune um like what you're playing and bring out certain notes but i i don't have that kind of facility (laughs) but then again uh yeah i think that it's all like the the more uh skilled pianist you are the more uh, your instrument needs to be like top notch uh, in order to let you take advantage of all those nuances and then again i think there is this kind of symbiotic uh, relationship between you and your instrument where you somehow uh, tie um uh develop also your uh your style according to 
the instrument you're playing to some extent of course because professional pianists are capable of uh, getting the more or less the same sound out of various different instruments but something like that no definitely there i mean i mean i'm so amazed by these just <laughs> there's some amazing performers out there especially with the, in the mm. piano with the piano and uh, just out of curiosity the first uh, untitled track of your latest uh, untitled album that features a piano uh how was that recorded is was that already that's me playing um but ah okay so it's you it's just it's just me but it's um it's digital uh, or it's like a i used a vst piano i played mm -hmm. on my keyboard okay. uh i am, mm -hmm. have a um yeah electric piano and i just recorded it um but yeah it's me me playing that and it's uh some funny uh, field recordings. <laughs> wow, nice. So you kind of reversed your approach uh, going from like using a controller, like like a physical controller, like playing as like a piano, but on a computer. And now you're using a computer to play on an actual piano. I haven't thought of that exactly. Yeah, no, that's funny. <laughs> I did, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, I mean, this also is, I think that not, Thinking about everything in advance is also good because, I mean, you are trusting your guts, which is the, the, probably one of the most important things as an, as an artist. Yeah, totally. And it's fun to be surprised a little bit where it was like, oh, I did that? Something that I always, uh, I think a lot of us, uh, people that produce and make stuff, it's like you'll make a patch or you'll do something and then you wake up. The next day and you listen to it and you're like, oh man, this is terrible. <laughs> it's just awful. Yeah. And then maybe you yeah. go and then you return to it in like a month and you're like, who made this? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, I always think about it, like the person that that sets the alarm. Like for me, you know, every morning I, there's somebody that has to turn on the alarm for the next day. That that's not the same person that wakes up in the morning. Because when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, who set this alarm? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is also why the um, the the ancient uh, Roman uh, poet uh, like Horace in his uh, uh, Ars Poetica, which is a long, long uh, poem in form of a letter, uh, talking about the the art of poetry as a whole. He says that a true poet should, after he fin after they have finished their uh, their composition they should let it aside for nine years. And then after nine years, you can evaluate if that's good or not. Of course, that was like an exaggeration, but uh, the, the point is that you need to uh, step off the, the role of the creator uh, to judge your, uh, your, your, your work as a listener also. Totally. I mean, like they're set, they feel so separate, like the part of me that creates and the part of me that, you know, will, and that we can like loop that into um, 
things like sound design, like the, we were mm. talking about earlier, is uh, bringing, making all a lot of people. They'll make a um, a bunch of sounds, and then they'll come back to it and then compose later. Yeah. But yeah, it's like you almost you gotta you gotta like give things some time because the person mm-hmm. that is creates the sound and the person that judges is just so different, you know. Yeah, and also uh, the, the the thing that makes it hard to work with pre-recorded material is that you need to be a very patient listener and not to skip to the good part of the, what you remember it was a good part because. Uh, it, it's a very time-consuming process, that one, but very, very uh, uh, rewarding. Definitely. And I think about, you know, it reminds me of um, Pauline Oliveros, where she's... Mm, yeah. It's, it's like getting you in that state of like really listening to your environment and being really present is really, um, for me, you know, my... Uh, it's hard to to approach that but when i get in that state of just listening and exploring especially on the synthesizer too Mm. because there's this wide range of timbres and just beautiful colors that you can create with it where you yeah but you have to just sit there and be patient and yeah sometimes you need also the proper environment uh, I remember since we, we mentioned John Cage for uh, a bit earlier um, last year I went to Halberstadt in Germany where there is the John Cage organ project where they are playing as slow as possible the long time over six, yeah for 639 years and uh, <laughs> you hear a chain? Uh, no I w- no no I was there just uh, like in an, like every I think that the next change is uh, this February I think next February February 24 we have to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely I wonder if you're allowed to cheer when it happens because I feel like I ah uh, yeah no I think that there there are quite a lot of people in there I mean there are some there is the mayor and uh, some I mean it's like some some sort of an event I think and uh, but yeah uh, it really forces you to to listen very deeply to to the environment and the sound because that's basically uh, there is just an a tone but knowing that is part of a piece somehow uh, makes you listen to that uh, differently no totally i mean there is some way of thinking about i think a lot of music is really focused on where the the voices are moving and not mm. so much where the voices just are. True. Yeah, it's, it's just, and I think that there's something that I like about this slow music, maybe not as slow as the cage, but like this slow music where you can just listen to where things are because sound, it's beautiful. And especially when you start mm. to think about things like, you know, like in the the harmonic series where it was like blew my mind where it's like, oh, in every musical tone, there is present many tones. So you can think about every tone as like a sort of chord and an interesting one because you have the major third, the fifth, and it goes on forever. And, and it's it makes me, you know, want to sort of explore that more where you're like really just present and listen to where things are and what thing, what sound is. 
instead of like where it all is going, which I think that, that I mean, things like Counterpoint have been really, a, it's really cool stuff. But I think when we, when we slow it down, there's like this presence that hopefully you can get and you, you, this awareness. So I'd love to see that, that cage piece. It, it's really incredible. And he's, he's you know, I wrestle with him as a composer. I think that a lot of people do. And his thing that really inspires me is that he says that as a composer, he's shifted his responsibility from sort of, I think it's like providing answers to asking questions. And I just love, I just love that. And there's this art of, or this way of like exploring the world around us, our musical material that is not really, you know, providing these answers. It's like, you know, I, I would, I don't, I'm not one of those composers that would like stand in front of like another performer and just be like, no, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the music. Cause I don't know, <laughs> just maybe just, not, I don't feel qualified really. Like, I think that it's like, uh, um, it's a very uh, childish approach in a good way. The, the like Gage's approach was saying that anything can possibly uh, be, can potentially be music, uh, which uh, of course opens the door to, uh, I mean, it, it can be, um, it, it can be a very dangerous zone because if really everything can be music, also music, where is it? I mean, if, if it's everywhere, it's almost like it's anywhere, it's not like in no specific place, but at the same time, I think that Again, he was not probably wasn't trying to provide an answer there, but rather suggesting a question. I, I think that that's great. And there's something like, yeah, where is music is a, is something that I think about. There's something that I really love, like one of these old forms is, that I really feel really drawn to and want, want to eventually really work in is art song. Um, just the act mm. of setting text, taking a text from somewhere and, and then setting it to music. or And I guess like the more kind of naive interpretation of like what that is, is you find the you take a text and then you find the music and I, you bring the music out of it. And I've been kind of doing these little experiments with just trying to set text. And I find that like some of these texts that I've been dealing with, there's a possibility that some of it might have too much music. <laughs> but which kind of uh, text, for like, example? Uh, I mean, I, prose I, had or poetry. I was just looking at, listen, uh, reading Rilke, where I was like, oh, there's a little bit too much music in this. I don't know how I said this. <laughs> I feel more comfortable setting things like, uh, I think about uh, uh, Robert Ashley, who his text mm -hmm. is for his, the librettos for his experimental operas are beautiful and profound, but also very dry. 
Um, mm-hmm. and it's almost like, I mean, that guy could set, or, or you could set the phone book and which would be a little bit more comfortable than setting something that is like these amazing poets. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I see. But, uh, at the same time, uh, most of the, I, I feel like most of, uh, the um, recent poetry has a sort of uh, uh, I'm talking about like the mm, 20th century onwards has a very weird sense of rhythm uh, so to speak and almost uh, absent which might uh, uh, reflect also what you said earlier about uh, not uh, caring about where to go but caring where you are because of course classical poetry and uh, renaissance poetry and so on had a very uh, clear rhythmic structure that could uh, very nice i i like it a lot and you could really boil everything down to the meter and uh, everything was crystal clear on that that regard but then again it was a sense of perpetual motion Uh, leading you from a place to another, almost like dancing. You cannot like freeze while you dance because you probably uh, you won't be balanced over that, that that kind of moment. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, and I think about my relationship to I, you know, one of my how should I say this? But my relationship to rhythm is is so abstract. Like mm. I, I've. I love rhythmic music, but I, I find that I'm not so driven to make rhythm, rhythmic music. So I think I'm more attracted to these sort of looser, more abstract forms. Like I think about Feldman, where you'd have people be playing in all these different time signatures and they, they only come together at the end. Um, and these big, just masses of things phasing and and that's something you know you can talk about you know something that's really attractive about uh using usta as a sequencer is that it's not so tied to this the downbeat mm-hmm. the, the tyranny of the bar line uh, was it i forget who says that <laughs> yeah but i don't uh, i don't i cannot pinpoint the exact source right now But it was a very common uh, uh, tendency over the 20th century, I think, and maybe even earlier. Which, but I love, yeah. I also, I love techno, which is very on the grid, you know, uh, like that's, that can be great. But it's usually on the grid and then there's this thing, abstract thing. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was about to, to mention that because it's not like you have a, a discernible structure like A, B, A, B on a techno piece. I mean, yeah, like I love like, you know, one of the classics is Gas. Like uh, his, his work, uh, I don't know his, his name, um, but he just has a pulsing rhythm and above it is just a beautiful, like more ambient structure that loads above exactly. the track. Yeah. That stuff I'm just so attracted to. And uh, because uh, in, your, in your patch, you used... Uh, Uh, modulated LFO as a clock, right? 
also to n avoid this idea of uh, a structure. Yeah, and the um, yeah, and that's really taken from uh, like the Todd Barton Krell patch. Yeah, the crowd patch. Yeah, uh, which is like also a revelation. Where you think that technique, that little of, I use it in a lot of the things that I do. Where you can just have yeah. these big structures, but then also tying it into using a sequencer. So, I don't know. I, I love I love that thing. So in in that patch, just basically what the sequencer did was just selected pitches in which we can choose from because it's also not tied to it's not a linear sequence everything mm -hmm. is related to each other i think that in that patch everything is just tied to the harmonic series of a or loosely and also i like the fact that you use the uh, n plus one uh, voltage to shift to one of the two voices oh that's uh, uh, i use that in uh, everything uh, <laughs> Yeah, because that is also what uh, um, tricks your brain. Because if you if your interval, I mean, the, the overtone is uh, ignored. Uh, I mean, it, it is like blend with the, the the root note with the fundamental frequency only if it is at, like at a specific position. The moment you transpose it up or down and change the amplitude, it becomes a chord. So it's like playing on the verge between timbre and, and chords. Uh, sure, and, I, and chords. I think about that a, a, a lot in like when I'm putting in more notes. Um, is Yeah, where, where a note is positioned, this vertical space is like so important. And it's so, so different where you place it. Because things aren't present in, um, you know, in this, it's like loosely based, but if you transpose one of these, um, like harmonics or one of partials, mm. and if you transpose it up, it might not be in the base note of like A's harmonic series anymore. It might be somewhere else, you know, because it, it's a, and I, I think that that's something interesting to explore. Okay, so Trevor, uh, your this conversation has been uh, very inspiring. Has led us to some uh, un unforeseen territories, and I really can't wait to um, try and put some of these ideas into practice in studio and uh, make a patch in, in the style of uh, a Trevor Treglia that I will put after this episode as usual. But uh, before we say goodbye, I'd like to ask you a question that I asked also to our uh, previous guest, Francesco Gennari, which is, uh, if you could choose the, the next Fractools module, the, the models that don't exist, what would it be? Recently, I've been falling in love, working with the Surge. I really love the their module, which is an analog shift register, which is, is just sends, it's like a relay where it just sends, you send the signal in and then it sends it out. And then when you send the next signal, it sends, it just goes down. Um, this yeah. Sequence, so you can make these beautiful patterns like attaching like full per octave to, I mean, the tuning on the search one isn't, so it gets a little squirrely and strange. Which also also explains the unquantized sequencer because if you don't have a standard to conform to, basically everything. If nothing is in tune, also everything yeah, is in tune. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I I love that idea of just 
being able to create patterns from just one sequence and just mm. these beautiful patterns that create these just gorgeous patterns. So I'd love to see that and maybe combined with, uh, I don't know, it's just some CV uh, control, more CV control. I, I can never get enough. I need all the CV oh. control. Like CV control, like uh, CV generators or like, in, in tactile interface. I would like to have a, what do they call it? Uh, a sequential switch kind of thing. Like a multiplexer. Yeah. Like that combined with one of these um, like shift register things. I want to just send, I think that those are great. Uh, Basically, yes. Yeah, sending CV to as many points as possible in as many ways. The more processing of CV because there's so much yeah. that can happen. Like the, I love this idea of just uh, as I was, we were saying earlier, it's just uh, everything doing as much as you can before the mixer, where you are just all these processing and sending CV everywhere. I would just love to see more CV stuff. Yeah, it's it's also a huge, uh, it allows you to have more rules in your instrument definition. So you, you can define more more uh, parameters to, to, to edit in using strangest word. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. I, that idea of uh, instrument definitions too is like, it's a good it's 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 a good way to thinking uh, think about things. Yeah, we might put that in the title in the in the in the episode title. So <laughs> but um yeah, that was a bit uh, like an unexpected request but very very interesting and um so thank you very much for suggesting it. What was the last uh, the last uh module request from the last podcast? Uh Francesco talked about uh, a wave shaper asked asked for a like a wave shaper because he's also is is uh, using a lot of uh, um the the serge the wave multiplier and uh, he in it's actually quite interesting because uh he was very much into counterpoint and he, he is very much into uh the movement so we have uh, two very uh, opposite approaches, and uh, he uses uh, the um, um, the wave folders to add uh, uh, to add different textures to the voices and uh, make them uh, stand out more or or less, and use the timbre as a um, uh, musical parameter to be sequenced. Just just as pitch. That's an interesting approach because mm. yeah, with timbre changes, you can make all the your counterpoint voices uh, mm. stick out for sure. So you can yeah. do some parallel fits. <laughs> okay, so thank you again very, very much for staying with us, uh, Trevor. Um, as I said in the introduction, uh, Trevor's last album and title is um, available on uh, Bandcamp. I will put the link uh, in the um, episode description for everybody to check out. And um, we will meet soon in Fraptus Studio to uh, create a pass inspired by uh, Trevor Trellias Inside. Thanks again for staying with us, Trevor. Thanks so much.
Hello again, Giovanni here at Fraptus. Uh, the interview is over and I took some time to understand the Trevor's patch and g- get together all the inspiring uh, uh, ideas we shared in our conversation. And this is the patch I came up with. Patch consists of two voices, played by brains as yellow and green oscillators, respectively. The green one plays a steady drone. Its sawtooth output feeds Kunsa's filters 3 and 4, set to low pass and band pass, respectively. Their cutoff frequency is modulated by a Falistri generator set to loop mode, with a speed randomization from Sapel. The yellow oscillator provides the second voice and it is a bit more complicated. The final output feeds Kunsa's filter 1 with a very high Q setting. The low pass output then goes into filter 2's input which has no Q and a generous character setting. Filter 1's purpose is to emphasize certain overtones of the yellow oscillator, while filter 2 provides a slower modulation over the final sound. The filter 2 low pass output then goes into Fumana, whose odd and even bands output feed the left and right inputs of a quad stereo channel. This is my choice for specializing the sound instead of modulating the pan pot as in Trevor's patch. A slow raw voltage sequence from the Usta sequencer changes the yellow oscillator's pitch, while a faster one, still with raw voltages, changes the filter one's cutoff frequency to select only specific overtones. To ensure that the overtones match the fundamental, the first sequence, the one that controls Breso's yellow oscillator, is duplicated and one copy is summed to the second sequence, the one that controls the filter. The sequencer is driven by a looping Felistri who at the same time controls the cutoff frequency of the filter 2 and triggers both Sapel's generators. Sapel's random values modify the speed of both Falistri's LFOs, the one controlling filters 3 and 4, and the one that moves the sequence. And they also perform a stage shift over the overtone sequence, thus causing a random overtone pattern. Other modulation sources like random voltages and LFOs controls various timbral parameters on the brain. So at the end, a shimmer reverb emphasizes the overtones. 
The combination of fundamental frequency and overtone determines the stereo placement of the largest part of the sound, according to the band of Humana where they will end up to. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you want to learn more you can follow the link in the episode description. My name is Giovanni Grandi and this was Let's Talk Music with Fraptools. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time.